Uh, many of you are parents and you finished this week. This was the last week of school for your kids uh, in elementary school and high school, right? How many of you did that this week? Raise your hands. Yeah, a few of you. All right, clap your hands because you made it through uh, this week because that was a good week, all right? I was not aware that fourth graders also have a graduation now, and so that kind of that kind of messed up my week a little bit, kind of schedule some things in and figure that out and make a big deal about that, that one too. You know, the last days of school, well, I remember being in school. I had a teacher who would, who would talk about it being, he would try to snap the, the class out of what he would call John Deere dreaming, is what he would call it. And that's when you're sitting in your classroom, you're focused on biology, theoretically, and then all of a sudden the John Deere man comes mowing right by the window and everybody turns and looks and the smell of that fresh cut grass kind of comes in or even maybe a little bit of debris comes in. And as the teacher, I, I'm sure there is no possible way you're going to get those kids back because you've just got the scent. John Deere dreams. That's what's going on. You're like, man, it's summer and it's coming. And you, you know, there he is. He's waiting for you. He's ready for you to come out and play. Um, but the last days of school, do you remember the last day of school when you were a kid? Do you remember, like, there was a lot going on that day, wasn't there? There was, there was like the, the last test, the big project that you had. No, not the last day of school. You don't do any, you don't do, the teacher knows that it's futile, futile for you to be able to do a test on the last day of school to come in and do a major project or come in and like, okay, your whole, all of your school, it all comes down to this one test that's going to happen on the very final last day of school. No. No, the last day of school is set aside for birthday parties, like you do all your summer birthday parties. And I think high school students are starting to do this now, too. Like, I mean, there's really just no point in the last day of school. Like, why? Because at this point, it's pretty much a waste of time. How productive could you possibly be on the last day of school? Uh, you would rather do a field day than do a presentation or a project. You, you're going to just enjoy the last day. It's, it's the last thing you're going to do. You don't want to put any effort into it or any work into it uh, because it's your last day. Some of you have had maybe this week. I don't know. Maybe you had your last, last day at work. And it's, it's pretty hard. You know, that last day of work, you wear out the edge of your desk by putting your feet up on the desk on your last day of work. If, if uh, you didn't plan it to be your last day of work, if you spent your day doing that, then it was also your last day at work. There's something about it that you just don't put the effort or the time in it. Maybe because there's no opportunity for reward or an award. There's no motivation to expend yourself and give any effort to what you're doing. Why exert any energy today? And so I want to ask this big question as we get started. Why should I work really hard on something today if it's just going to be gone tomorrow? Why should I spend and work a lot of time and a lot of effort really hard on something today if it's just going to be gone tomorrow? You know, life is a lot like the last day of school. Uh, some people come to this, they realize it, and it's a brutal reality when they come to it, and they go, what am I doing? What's the point here? Why waste our time? It's like the last day of school. It's all going away anyway. Uh, sin will bring death. All will die. Death comes for us all. I'm sure you're wondering, like, what's the matter with Milo? Did he tie his shoes too tight this morning? His, you know, his, his cereal soggy when he got to it. This is what's going on here in this book of Ecclesiastes and just dealing with uh, the Bible ultimately is being clear. All have sinned. Sin brings death. All 
will die. Your last day is coming and you don't know when it will be. It could be today. It could be decades today from today. It could be a week from today. Either way, one thing is certain. You will have a last day. Because of death, life can feel merely like a vanity, like a vapor, like a mist. It's going away and it's going away quickly. Death is a great equalizer. No matter how high you ascend into life, when it's all said and done, everyone ends up in the same spot, six feet underground. Those of you who are getting older and you're battling with some of the ailments and and struggles of life, you've got a major health problem maybe, maybe you're more prone towards a melancholy way of living because you're uh, more clearly and feel this more painfully that, that the time is getting short. Those of you who are still young and strong, you tend towards optimism. You think, well, that's so far away, I don't but don't have to worry about it. Uh, there's still hills to conquer. There's still life to live. There's organizations to start. There's causes to fight for. There's change to implement. Uh, you mo- focus your gaze on carving out a meaningful life because it's so far ahead. There's so much there. But keenly aware of that, Solomon, the author of Ecclesiastes, deals with this. He, he's one of those who's, who's got the um, been there, done that t-shirt for everything possible on the planet. You know, you ever pull up behind someone at an intersection, they have that sticker, the 13.1 sticker, what does that mean? They've, they've run a half marathon. And some of you are like, yeah, I got this sticker on my car. Okay. Well, it's the 26.2, that's, that's a full marathon. And then the others of you are like, we don't care that you ran a marathon. Uh, you know, I don't care. You know, ha- have fun. I don't, I don't want to see your bumper sticker. I don't care. And then there's the other one, I don't even know the actual number. It's like 140 point one or three or I don't know that's like that's the Ironman that's if you've done a full marathon or excuse me a full swim followed by a full 100 miles on a bicycle followed by a full marathon that's an Ironman and so you get the I think it's 140 or something like that and that stickers on the back of your car and so in some ways uh we look at the life of Solomon and he has the t-shirt or he's got the bumper sticker. He's been there, he's done that for everything that you could possibly imagine. He sees the finish line of death. He sees it fast approaching. He even sees it maybe as the cliff of death. As it's coming up, it's not just something that's going to uh, sort of kind of meander its way in. No, when it happens, it's going to happen quickly and everything is going to be over. And as he's standing at that precipice, standing at the cliff, he's, he's yelling back to the next generation. He's saying, wait a minute, you need to be certain. You know and you understand what's coming. You need to live your life and it needs to be of value. You need to be aware that there are things that you don't want to waste your life on. He's looking back and he's saying, college graduates, those, those of you who are newly married, those of you who are buying your first house, those of you who are starting your first business, there are some things that you need to be aware of. Uh, you need to be worried about the lane that you're running in. It's futile. The lane they're running in, the fast lane. You familiar with that term? The fast lane. The fast lane is something that was not derived after an interstate system. This is something that that Solomon, I believe, knew really well. Uh, The fast lane has been popular and purposeless for all 3,000 years since Solomon has walked the earth. Here's, Here's kind of the attributes of the fast lane. Two universal principles that all parents tell their kids when they send them out and put them in the fast lane of life. First, study hard in school. Second, Get a good job and work hard. That's the fast lane. Some of you are like, man, that's actually pretty good advice. I, I don't know what the problem is, right? Like, 
Yeah, we want you to study hard in school. You, you want people to get a good job. You want people to work hard. You, you want to have a good life of meaning and a value and a purpose. And if you do those things, it's all going to come together. But Solomon, as history's wisest fool, will show us as we move through here today, his, his results are shocking. They're troubling. They're disorienting. Because it's, it's what all of us say. It's what we all tell our kids. Study, work hard in school, get a good job. Do the best you can, and you'll have a great career path, and you'll have a great life because of it. But, is that all there is to life? Have we missed something? Is that really what the meaning of life is? See, King Solomon has devoted his life to answering one question. What is the meaning of life? Doing this series. What is the meaning of life? Or to ask it another way, what makes life valuable? What makes it purposeful? What makes it meaningful? He's dealing with the three most important questions people can ask. And we talked about this last week, but I want to reiterate it again. First, the origins. Where do I come from? Meaning, what is the purpose of my life? And destiny, what happens after I die? The first book of the Bible, Genesis, deals with the origins question. It says, uh, you are uniquely made in the image and likeness with a particular dignity, value, and worth. That's what the book of Genesis is all about. And then the last book of the Bible, Revelation, it answers the third question. It tells us this is what's going to happen. You're going to return to God at the end of life for an eternal sentencing, either to heaven or to hell, for all of eternity. And then between Genesis... In Revelation, you have this book, Ecclesiastes, which deals with how do you live in the middle? The tension of life, when you look around and you see things are damaged, things are broken, and I'm supposed to live here in this, how do I do that? What is the meaning of life? Solomon limits his study to the natural world. He talks about all the things that are under the sun, and we see that multiple times uh, in this passage, and today's passage is no exception. He doesn't reference the supernatural world really at all, only very few times. All we have to draw from the earth are our five senses and our experiences and what we see and what we experience. And so last week we talked about running on empty. He took time to chase the popular diversions. He chased them to the end to find out what they were associated with, only to discover that the pursuit of happiness is like an Easter egg hunt with no eggs. It's kind of messed up. Invite everyone over to an Easter egg. Our church, let's put up some banners. Invite everyone to the Easter egg hunt. And then they get to the field in the back and they get, there's no eggs. Some of you get, like, that would be bad, right? (laughs) Thank you for following me, at least a couple of you there. He's searching for a meaningful life and wisdom and work and education and getting things done. Our equivalent would be getting a good job. He's doing all of this, and here's his conclusion. I'm working at a fast pace. I'm going to die a slow death. Working a fast pace only to die a slow death. Some of you are in that mode this morning. Others of you are not there now and maybe I can assist you into that mode by the time we get done here today. Let's go to verse 17 of chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 17. If you're using your pew Bibles, I'm going to teach out of the NIV this morning. I realize that the NIV was what you have in front of you, and some of you are looking at that, and I want to kind of align those things this morning. So we'll be in the NIV. We're in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, 17. Uh, I think it's page 698 or 99 in your Bibles if you're looking there. Beginning at verse 17, it says, So I hated life. 
He's been running and he's been searching and he's been looking, he's been chasing all things and he starts out this section of scripture by saying, so I hated life. We were in a class this morning, elective class, and someone used the word hate and we go, oh, wait a minute. Hate, that's kind of a strong word. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. It's a waste of time. What's the point? What's the purpose? I'm going to date myself a little bit here. I was in high school in the 90s for the rise and fall of a band called Nirvana. Any of you heard of this band? Some of you are nodding. Others of you have no idea what I'm talking about. That's okay. There's other things here for you today. Throughout history, there have been prominent figures, there have been prominent musical bands, organizations that have come together who have been very prominent and very young in life. They achieve everything that they could possibly hope for, uh, everything that they've dreamed of, and then they realize that they're out of dreams. Now what are you supposed to do? And that's when despair takes root. I think that's what happened to Kurt Cobain. They had so much success. Nirvana as a band had so much success. Uh, what's he going to do? Is he going to make another platinum record? He's already done that. What is he going to do? Buy another house? He, he could buy a thousand of them if he wanted to. Uh, what is he going to do? Is he going to uh, buy another trinket? What's he going to do? So sadly, he took his own life. And that's the story of many of those in pop culture that have that shining success, what we think that we all want, and then the next thing they know, what am I supposed to do now? What is the meaning of life? There's a diminishing return on the pleasure that Solomon is seeking. He's starting to hate life. He's disliking life because he's already done it. So what's there left to do? Really, it becomes a matter of perspective. Imagine a boy in the backyard. He's throwing up the ball, and he shouts to the world, because boys do this. Uh, they shout to the world, I'm the best batter who's ever lived. And then he throws the ball up and swings at it. Then he misses. He says, okay, so strike one. So he picks up the ball again, throws it up again. I'm the best batter in the whole world. Throws it up, swings, misses. Strike two. I'm the best batter in the whole world. So it changes the emphasis. So it makes it going to be different. Throws up the ball. Swings. Misses. Three strikes. You're out. The boy responds. Shouts to everyone. I'm the best pitcher in the whole world. <laughs> it's a matter of perspective. See, there's two approaches to life. Solomon deals with both of them here. There's the ambitious optimist. In this passage, we're going to look at that as the wise. And there's some of them among us. They devote their lives to study, to knowledge, to insight, trying to make sense of this world. As we looked in chapter 2 last week, it's a crooked, it's a twisted mess. And they look at it and they work and they work and they work and they try to make sense of it. And they're going to straighten this thing out and they're going to use those tools to do that. Or there's the lazy pessimist. Solomon calls him a fool. Those who have lost hope in changing the world, they embrace a fatalistic conclusion that working towards being informed or working towards changing anything or working towards changing culture or working towards any of that, it's all a waste of time. So instead, what do they do? They just consume all the resources. It doesn't matter. It's a waste. And so they consume and they consume. So let's start with that one first. It's the foolish man's approach. The foolish man's approach. 
Beginning in verse 18. He continues with the same type of language. I hated, I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. This is the fool. And who knows whether that person will be wise or a fool, yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil in which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This, too, is meaningless. Solomon has chosen a lifestyle of entrepreneurial labor. Uh, he works. He's a builder. He's a manager. He's not the laborer himself. He, he's not the one out there swinging the pickaxe and the hammer, but he's the one who's putting it all together. He has bettered his country by building. He has bettered him, his own uh, palace by building. He has bettered himself by building. He is the definition of a workaholic because what he did, he tries to satisfy himself. He tries to satisfy the hole that he has inside of him and it's not going to be filled. He doesn't feel whole. He says, I'm going to build this. I'm going to build this city and it's going to make me feel so good. And then all of a sudden the project is over. The city is built and he doesn't feel any better. What is he supposed to do? When that doesn't fill him, he wonders, well, maybe, maybe it's up to me to build a kingdom, to build a safe place for my people to live, not only a safe place, but a victorious place, a healthy place that will last my legacy, my offspring for the next generation. Then he goes, oh, no, what if we do all of this and my sons are fools and they squander it all? And ask the question, is it better to build your own wealth? Is it better a person to start out with an inheritance to get started? Can a person really appreciate something that they haven't worked for themselves? We ask this question a lot. Can a person really appreciate something that they haven't worked for themselves? It happened here in the United States, post-war America. That's what it looked like, was that there were so many people who, who, who put all their time, all their effort, and worked so hard to build something for their family, to be able to hand down to the next generation a legacy. How many parents do you know, maybe you're here, who have passed on something just to have your heart broken, just to have your heart broken because it was squandered and blown and wasted away? In the last 50, 60, 75 years, that's the story of America. He has been wise. He's built Israel to be wealthy and powerful. He has built all of these things and he's looking at his boys and he's going, oh no, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. He is the wisest man who lives so he wasn't, a fool. He wasn't foolish to miss it. He looked at his sons. He said, this is, this is not good. This is who I have to hand this off to. He's utterly frustrated. He's powerless to control what happens to the wealth he's accumulated. In the end of the day, he's absolutely right. Solomon left his kingdom to Rehoboam, who was a total wingnut. He messed it all up. The taxes that Solomon had put on his people, Rehoboam comes along and he doubles those taxes. He split the kingdom in two because of his greedy activity. And just like that, it was all over. It all came crashing down. So... Why should I work really hard on something today if it's just going to be gone tomorrow? I know, let's change our perspective and let's look at this thing a little bit differently. Because there's the power of positive thinking, right? Because that'll change things. If I come at it from a different angle, just have a better attitude about it, will it change the results? The wise man's approach, verses 20 
through 23. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. 21. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill. And then they must do what? Leave all it to another who has not toiled for it. This is meaningless and it is a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving in which they labor under the sun? All their days their work is grief and in pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. And it's all meaningless. Today the amount of information that we have access to on planet earth is increasing at a staggering rate. It is everywhere you look. You have access on that little phone that some of you just realized that I said that phone. You look up and you say, oh, I'm on my phone. Yeah, that one. We have more data in our life than ever. We are free to pursue an education in so many different ways than have ever been available to you before. There are plenty, plenty of people who now can learn uh, a musical instrument via YouTube videos and actually be pretty good at it. They don't have to have a teacher anymore. They don't have to have all of the infrastructure. Now we want that, but you don't have to have that. The access is there. It's never been there before. No matter how much we know, though, one day you will die and realize you've not changed the world in any lasting way. Your vast amount of knowledge, your strong work ethic, or your great new idea hasn't changed anything because you will die. What good is it when you all work all day long, work and work and work, and, and work yourself into sweat so that you can just go to bed at night and work yourself up into a tizzy and worry? Because that's the situation you're in, in the fast lane. Sleep deprivation at night because you are worried about the future. For all the effort that life requires, it sure seems like you get very little in return. And Solomon is the wise man. He's put all this time, all this effort, all this motivation behind it. He has lived his life not like the fool. He's lived it like a wise person. And he's coming to the end of it. He's realizing it doesn't matter what your approach is. The end is still the same. He looks around. He compares life's pathways. No matter which one you take, you wind up empty. If you are rich, you are wealthy, you still wind up empty. If you are poor and you live life and just consume everything and, and you're, you're like, I'll let someone else deal with that, you still come up empty. If you live life like a wise man and you, you, you take time to build and do things like that, you're still coming up empty. If you live it like a fool and say, I'll let someone else do all that for me. I'll let you take care of all my needs and you still come up empty. You get an inheritance empty. Sure, glad there's a few more verses, aren't you? Why should I work really hard on something today if it's just going to be gone tomorrow? Why are you working a fast pace and coming to a slow, meaningless, chasing after the wind, death? Let me ask the second question How does our view of death affect how we view the meaning of life? How does your view of death affect? the way that you that affect the view and meaning of life. Solomon does this here, and he only does it a few times in the book. He takes a rare glimpse of what is above the sun. Most of the time he has made it clear all is meaningless under the sun. But it's almost like he looks up out of the waves and he looks up for the first time and he, does, he mentions God in these verses. And actually in the next few verses he mentions God four different times. And he hasn't said God's name at all to this point. 
in the book. So, how does our view of death affect how we view the meaning of life? First of all, we are working for the one who gives life. We are working for the one who gives life. And if we're going to do that, we need to realize that God's creation, what He has created, what we see here with our five senses, cannot produce satisfaction. Verses 24 and 25. God's creation cannot produce satisfaction. Verse 24, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil or their own work. This too I see is from the hand of God. For without Him, who can eat or find enjoyment? The things that are listed here to to eat and drink and labor or go to work, those are the monotonous everyday things that we all have to do. There's no excitement here. You get up in the morning, you eat, you drink, you go to work. You go to bed, get up in the morning, you eat, you drink, you go to work. But it's in these things you cannot find any value. A person can do nothing better, it says here. There is absolutely nothing that you could do better. and There's no other way you are not going to find satisfaction in any way. You cannot find it within yourselves. It is not there. Without God in the center of your life, life is dissatisfying. Nothing will satisfy. 99% of conflict is going to come from what to say. 99% of conflict comes from this. The, major, the majority of human beings believe that people and circumstances exist to make them happy. People, circumstance exist to make you happy, to make me happy. And so when you're not happy, who's to blame? People, circumstances. So if you do not ascribe to enjoyment as belonging to Christ and God alone, you almost ensure that your reality will be filled with bitterness, resentment, and unforgiveness. At some point, that's where you're going to come to. Here's how it plays itself out over and over again. There's a man, he's got his wife, he's got his kids, he's got a good job. He's working, he's working hard, and he's making a living for him and his family. But there's still something gnawing at his soul, something that is wearing away inside of him. What could it be? Well, it's not something wrong with me. And so what does he do? He looks at his circumstances. He looks at the people who are around him. He says, it has to be someone around me. Someone is supposed to be making me happy, and they're not making me happy. And so they start to inspect and look at all the imperfections of everyone around them. And they'll find it when they're looking. So this is the game we start playing. Well, I would be happier if I had more money. I would be happier if I had a nicer house. I would be happier if my wife had sex with me more often. I would be happier if, and you just fill this thing in, and the next thing you know, you go down this road, and you just go down and down and down. I'd be happier if they would honor me at work. They just don't respect me there. And everything becomes about what everyone else is doing because you're asking people to fill a void and circumstances to fill a void that they will never be able to fill. This is Solomon's argument. God's creation cannot produce satisfaction apart from God himself. God's creation cannot, will not produce satisfaction apart from God himself. Secondly, God cares for those who seek him. Verse 26. 
God cares for those who seek Him. To the person who pleases Him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, happiness. But to the sinner, He gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. God gives to those who please Him, it says God gives wisdom and knowledge and happiness. God's people should be full of joy. What the unbelieving world simply cannot fathom is when they walk into the church and it's full of people who all, everybody came in this morning with their shoes tied too tight. It's unbelievable. They said, how could this be possible? If God is working and acting in their lives, they should be the most joyful people on the planet and I agree with them 100%. Let me try to explain this. You're, you're telling me, if you look at this passage... You can ask, you say, are you telling me that unless someone has Jesus in them, if I don't believe in Jesus, all of my stuff is eventually going to go to the Christians? Is that what verse 26 is teaching? For the unbeliever, that all my stuff, all that I amass together, that the believer is the one who gets it? I would say, yeah, actually, eventually, that's where it's going. Let me give you one example of how this plays out in modern day. In Colorado Springs, there's a a uh, English 35-room Tudor-style castle called Glen Eyre. Maybe you've heard of it. It was built by General William Jackson Palmer, the founder of Colorado Springs. And he built it for his wife, who was in England and didn't want to come to what was a pretty rough town. And so he built this for her, and then she would be able to come and be there with him. Once it was finished, when she came, she didn't like it. Some say that she stayed for a week, maybe two weeks. That was it. So now, guess what? Fast forward a number of years. The 800-acre castle is now known by the evangelical organization called the Navigators. That's where their home office is. And every day of the week, conferences are happening there. Bible studies are happening there. Discipleship is training seven days a week. It's open all the time. They, they open it for uh, tours to let people walk through this castle. But at the end of the tour, guess where the end of the tour comes? Let me share the gospel at the end of this tour. It's a historic site. It's a beautiful place. But God is using that. God has ordained that as a way to be able to use uh, these resources for the sake of the kingdom. The unbeliever, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth. And at the end of the day, what's he going to do? He's going to hand it over to the one who pleases God. That's what happens when you're in the business of working only for the one who gives life. But here's the main point. Here's, here's the bottom line. Point number three in this section. God's Son restores work's meaning. God's Son, Jesus, restores work's meaning. We're going to jump over to Colossians. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, Colossians chapter 3. I think this is like it's a pulling back. If you've used Google Earth before, where you just, just kind of scroll your mouse and you can just back up and all of a sudden you see the globe. Then you can zoom back in and see your street and your neighborhood. But when you back up and you see the bigger picture of what's going on, you get a better perspective when you look and you see what Solomon has been talking about and trying to articulate here. He's moving now and then you zoom back out to the one who is wiser still, that is Jesus Christ and what he has taught and what he has taught his followers and the Apostle Paul here to be doing. Death is indeed coming for us. But the fact is, it's the beginning, not the end. The Lord Jesus alone has conquered the great enemy of death and has returned to life to reveal the other side to us. He's revealing to us. He says, death, I've conquered death. Death is beaten. Death has died. 
That's what Jesus does for us. For the people of God, on the other side of death, there's a kingdom where the curse is no more because sin is no more. In this world that we live in today, we receive temporal awards, things that waste away. But in God's kingdom, people receive eternal awards for living wisely and working faithfully. In this way, life is a long journey towards a forever home. It's an opportunity to make memories and store up our treasures in heaven just like Jesus taught. And as Solomon takes a look at the rules and the the order of things above the sun, that's what we see here. The Apostle Paul is telling the Colossians, He's telling them to focus and to look at the things, uh, not, not at the rules and the patterns of this world. When they look around, there's all these rules that they have to live by. He says, no, 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 take a minute here, step back. There's more than that. I want you to look above the sun. Chapter 3, verse 1 says this, Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart, gets this, on things above where Christ is at, seated on the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on these earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. It's a change in perspective. A perspective that has everything to do with a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's all about relationships everything to do with relationships. Let me give you an illustration of this. My son, Elias, he's two years old. Um, He eats, he sleeps, he dirties his diaper, and he yells, mine. That's his life. That's his world. That's about all he brings to the table. He has yet to walk in from playing in the backyard or from being down the street and comes in and, and drops a $100 bill on the counter and is like, Dad, I just want to let you know I, just, I need to start pulling some weight around here. No! I get a ba-ba-boo-boo-ba-ba mommy, but no daddy yet. He demands so much. If you sit down with him, you, you can sort of interact with him, but you're not going to have a conversation with him. You talk to my oldest daughter and and you're going to have a conversation about the periodic table and how all of that goes together and how she just understands it. My goodness. I don't understand that thing, but it just works for her. But now with my son, if I sit down and have a conversation with him, uh, he, he really isn't doing a whole lot there. He doesn't contribute a whole lot to the family right now. The only thing he contributes are dirty diapers on a regular basis. He sucks resources and time and energy and makes demands. But you know what the reality is? I don't mind. I don't mind because I can see the bigger picture. I can see the future, if you will. And in the future, he and I are sitting on the swing in the backyard uh, eating popsicles and talking about the strategies of church planting in the region or theology of what God has been teaching him this week. That's the bigger picture. That's where things are going. Because one day he's not going to be delivering his poopy diapers to me anymore. Please. You know, I love him with every ounce of what I have now because I know what the future holds. Doesn't that sound a lot like Jesus' love for you and for me? Jump down to verse 23, Colossians 3, 23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, 
not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Jesus Christ you are serving. So this change means that satisfaction in work isn't empty anymore. It's not a dead end. It's easy when it's Christ that you are serving, when you see the bigger picture, when you see the relationship, regardless of the monotony of your job and of the task that you have. One last story, and I'll leave you with this. My, my grandfather, Claude Wilson, passed away in 1998. He worked a job that many of you have no desire to work whatsoever, a dairy farm. And on the dairy farm, you get up in the morning at 4 o'clock in the morning and you feed the animals. Because if you don't, they're obnoxious and then they start literally breaking out of fences and going crazy. You need to feed the animals. You need to milk them. You need to work your way through the day. And then you know what happens? You come into the summer months like it is now and you work like a dog to put all of the harvest that you possibly can in the barns. So that what? So that the animals consume them all winter long. And in the winter you go out and you break through the ice and you try to feed them. And then you uh, do all that you can to take care of these animals. And you clean up after them all year long. All day long, your entire life, you are a farmer. You smell like a farmer. You look like a farmer. You act like a farmer. There is really very little that is as monotonous as the life of a farmer. But when you go through that, and I don't care what your job is, I don't care if you work in an office building for 40 years and mop the floors and that's what you do, there's got to be an understanding that there's something bigger at play here. What my grandfather knew and understood is that what he did had value. He loved doing what he did because when he would read Scripture about the farmer going out and sowing crops in the fields, he knew what that was like. When he read Scripture about leaving 99 to go look for the one, he knew what that was like and he would grab me as his grandson and say, this is why this is important for you to pay attention to. When we go out and look for this animal that's driving you crazy, I want you to remember what Scripture says about this. When you work that job, doing the thing that you don't like to do, and you realize you're doing it because you are serving human people that God has created in His own image, or you are working and you are in relationship with people that you, you only have access to, no one else does, you start having this above-the-sun thinking. So if you want, you can continue to work a fast place, pace, live in that fast lane, and die a slow death. Or you can work and be working for the one who gives life. And through Jesus Christ, raising your eyes, setting your mind on things above, not on things of this earth. And working with that in mind, and it changes everything. I'm not talking about positive thinking. I'm talking about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And through that relationship, everything changes and the darkness and the despair that we see in this world around us starts to kind of come together and form into something that we can manage because we see God's hand in it. So this morning as the band comes, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to see through what you're going through, see through your days, but see through the relationship of a father to his son. Just like my relationship with my son. There's a lot that you will endure. There's a lot that will go on because he can see the future. He knows the future. And just like I need my son to understand that, that, that I have 
sometimes his best intentions in mind, whether he understands it or not, we need to have that same perspective with God. When we work for, when we serve the one who gives life, then it's not the last day of school every day. Then things start to matter. Relationships start to matter. That person that you bump into at the store seemingly for a random reason and they just had someone go into the hospital or, or, or a relative just died. Why did you bump into them? Because it matters. Because God is at work and you are working for the one who gives life. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. It's sharp. It pierces this morning. And so if there's some that is pierced today where you're speaking truth into their heart, Lord, I pray that they would be willing to step out and say, you know what, I am tired of living this life under the sun. God, give me a perspective, a relationship with Jesus Christ so that I can be connected to what's going on above the sun. If not, this is all meaningless and I'm wasting my time. God, there are some here who are young and they look ahead and they say, there's plenty of time. I don't need to worry about this now. I know from my own life that time is short. You never know. And there's those in this room that are nearing the end. Their days are numbered, sure. All of our days are numbered. And maybe they've got a better perspective on this, Lord, but don't let them start checking out living a life that says, oh, it's the last day of school. It doesn't matter anymore. Let them lead the charge of what it means to live a God-glorifying life day after day after day after day because it matters. We love you, Lord. Give us the strength to step into what you have for us. Give us a desire to accept your son, Jesus, and be satisfied in that. Give us a new perspective. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.